Glaciers melt, wildfires rage across Europe. The normally lush UK is a is a parched and yellowed husk after the summer just gone. Waterways polluted, Pakistan consumed by raging water. And all through this, more and more land cleared to allow industrialised production of food crops for, for a quickly growing global mass of hungry people. The systems that sustain us in this place are strained, collapsing perhaps, and brought down by, well, uh, by us. Uh, an apt time uh, for the release of a new book from George Monbiot, Guardian columnist, environmental campaigner, and that new book, uh, Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet. It's a story of what we eat and how we grow it and the consequences of that process. It offers up some hard truths and some radical alternatives. George, welcome. Thanks very much. That notion, Regenesis, that, that feels like a big idea. Well, we, we are facing a series of interlocking crises and one of them, as you say, is the great environmental crisis, perhaps the greatest existential crisis humanity has ever encountered. But at the same time, we have this enormous question of how everyone's going to be fed. And we've seen how that question has been highlighted by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, mm. but it wasn't invented by that. Um, <laughs> the number of chronically hungry people has been rising since 2015. And even through a period for about five years from 2015 onwards of very low global food prices. And this is because of a systemic fragility, which is quite similar to what we saw in the financial sector in the approach to 2008. And while that's pretty scary where finance is concerned, it's even scarier where food is concerned, because we have, I think, a real prospect of seeing the global food system collapsing in the way that the global financial system very nearly did. And so what I'm looking for are the really big answers to these really big conundra. And, and I think I hope that I've found some of those ways in which we can provide enough food without pushing the planetary boundaries, pushing our life support systems even further over the brink. It's the complexities of these interlocking crises that, that can be well, not, not, not so much baffling, but is in, intimidating perhaps, or, mm. or, or tend to, to make people think that they're insoluble. But do they, do they trace back? to sort of common points? Are there, are there points of origin that can be attacked with solution? Yeah, yes. So our, our food system is in trouble in all sorts of ways. And part of that trouble is its enormous environmental impacts, which in turn bounce back onto the food system. So, for instance, um, our production of grains around the world is now seriously threatened by climate breakdown, both by um, huge tracts of the planet drying out um, or becoming too hot for people to work outdoors at all, let alone for livestock and and um, and indeed some crops to to survive anymore, um, a great reduction in soil moisture and also far more extreme events which can flatten crops and cause all sorts of chaos, and that is driven to a large extent by by the food system. Um, it's one of the greatest causes of climate breakdown. It's the greatest cause of habitat destruction of 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 wildlife loss of extinction. Uh, 
of soil loss, of freshwater use, um, and above all, perhaps, it, our food production is the greatest cause of land use. It's responsible for about 38% of um, the, all the, uh, well, it covers about 38% of the, the land surface of the planet, uh, which is far more than all other human activities combined. And and that has an enormous impact on the living world because every hectare of land that we use for food production is a hectare of land that can't be used or can't can't support wild habitats like rainforests or savannas or wetlands um, or natural grasslands on which the great majority of the world species depend. And so what we've got to do, I think, both to ensure that everyone is adequately fed and to protect the living planet, which includes protecting our own farming systems, is to minimise the area that we use for farming, while at the same time minimising the inputs into the food production system. And that sounds like a very tall order. Well, it sounds counterintuitive as yes, well. I mean, well, <laughs> well, well, that's right. I, I know. You know, the, the greatest danger to the world's living systems is agricultural sprawl, is sprawling across the planet with vast areas used for fairly low production agriculture, because that is the great driver of habitat destruction. That's why the Amazon is, 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 is being burnt. It's cattle ranches pushing into that, not producing very much food, but occupying an enormous land area. And indeed, that's already happened in many parts of the world, which is why um, uh, pasture for animals um, represents 26 percent of the the um, terrestrial surface of the planet. 26% of all land is devoted to pasture for animals, whereas just 12% is devoted to arable crops. Um, and of that, nearly half is actually feeding animals rather than feeding humans directly. So animal farming takes a massively mm. disproportionate share of planetary space. And so that's the first thing we need to address. And my approach first of all is to say well you know if you possibly can make that change please go switch towards a plant-based diet but actually we have some incredibly promising new technologies which are going to make it easy to go well beyond that and i'm particularly interested in precision fermentation which which moves the production of protein-rich foods out of the farm um out of making them out of the flesh and secretions of animals and into the factory um, using unicellular life forms instead to produce protein-rich and fat-rich food. And, and that's much more efficient in terms of land use, water use, nutrient use. It, it shrinks the footprint of food production to an extraordinary degree. And makes it efficient. I mean, this is the point, is it not, that despite the, the statistics that you quote, that 38% of, of the world's space gave it over to agriculture, it is failing to feed the people on the planet. Yes. I mean, it, it, it's an expansive and destructive system, but at, at, at core, it's not working. I, I know, it's an extraordinary thing. Now, that's it's not because we are producing insufficient food. In theory, there's enough calories being produced uh, by farming to feed everyone almost twice over. Where does it go? Well, yes, that's the big question. So a great deal of that goes into animals, goes into livestock. Almost half of, of the land used for grain production 
is growing grain such as soya and maize, corn, to, to, to be fed to animals in big factories. It's brutal, it's horrible, and it's incredibly wasteful because most of that food value is lost by being passed through an animal, um, a, a domestic animal, before it comes to us. But then an increasing share is taken by biofuels, which I see as almost the definitive form of decadence, burning food. Um, so lots of crops now are, are used to turn into gasoline, to turn into biogas um, um, and, and other um, forms of biofuels. And then there's some that which, which we simply waste, though we, we tend massively to overestimate the amount that is 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 just wasted, whereas far more I would consider wasted um, is is going into animals. And yet, there's a sort of a disconnect in the in the broad public imagination about the nature of farming. I and mean, if you ask most people, they would give you a picture of farming which is off the pages of Thomas Hardy. It's not mm. <laughs> it's not represented by the systems that you're describing. We, we live in an extraordinary bubble of delusion about where our our food comes from. You know, the great majority of all the animal products people eat come from these monstrous steel factories where you've got maybe tens of thousands of, of chickens or thousands of pigs, for example, crammed together in really horrible conditions. You know, people who claim to be animal lovers, who love their cat, love their dog, love their goldfish, would be absolutely horrified if they really came to terms with mm. where that food is coming from. There's a, a fascinating statistic in the United States um, where roughly 95% of people are meat eaters, but 47% of people believe slaughterhouses should be banned. <laughs> I think that shows, it just shows how far out of whack we are when it comes to recognising where our food really comes from and what, what it takes to produce it. I wonder if there's you know, some grounds for optimism in, in that disassociation, because if, you, if, you, if you're a meat eater and you have no you know, connection in your mind between that product on the plate and, and, and the creature that it comes from, then surely um, it, it will be a simple matter to convert you to protein which is created scientifically that is not cut from a beast. You're, you're not going to be troubled by the associations. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm always amazed by people to say, ooh, food from microbes, yuck. Um, <laughs> whereas, of course, you know, we, we, we're mostly composed of microbes. Um, we eat microbes in every meal. You know, if you don't want to eat bacteria, tough, you'll have to starve because they're everywhere. Um, we deliberately insert live bacteria into foods such as cheese and yogurt. And yet, if you talk about producing a microbial flour made from, from dead microbes, um, mm but it just looks like a flower, but it's very, very high protein, which you can then use to turn into virtually any protein-rich um, meat substitute, milk, eggs, or things we haven't even conceived of yet. People go, ooh, I don't want to eat that. And you think, okay, let me show you what revolting looks like. You know, imagine I'm taking you to an intensive pig farm. Now, I know about intensive pig farms you because I worked on one when <laughs> I was a teenager. And these pigs are crammed together. I mean, I was, I was literally shoveling or actually pushing with a giant squeegee 
pig excrement from dawn till dusk when I worked on this pig farm. And there's pigs dying every day and you have to haul the carcasses out and they instantly begin to stink. And, and, and you know, it's a brutal business. And then, of course, they're trucked off to a slaughterhouse and you, know, you don't want to see what's going on there. And obviously people don't want to see what's going on there. And you think, okay, you know, you, you think that this sort of sterile, clean environment in which we, we can produce microbial flour is somehow disgusting. You, know, you need to see these animal factories. You need to see the reality of where your food is currently coming from. But there's no other possibility, is there? I mean, the, the ways in which we create food now, is, as we've said, are, are failing to feed the people on the planet. The number of people on the planet are, are growing extraordinarily. We need totally new uh, and efficient systems if we're ever going to feed those people. We do. We do. And and it's this bucolic romanticism which I think holds us back. Uh, uh, this goes back a very long way, you know, in terms of pastoral poetry to Theocritus in the third century BC, writing about the shepherds in his native Sicily, sitting under trees, talking and playing music and having sex with each other, but not actually doing any work, um, and created this as a sort of idyll of, of purity and innocence. And the city was evil and corrupt. And this theme was echoed in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, and then picked up in the New Testament, where Jesus is both agnostic day, the Lamb of God and the Good Shepherd, and he tells his disciples to feed my sheep. And so everything about sort of raising animals is, is good and pure and innocent. And that gets picked up in the Renaissance big time, Shakespeare and Spencer and Marlowe and many others. And then it comes roaring back in the 20th century in, in two particular forms. I, I don't know if you have this in Australia, but in, 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 in the UK, the BBC is just obsessed with sheep. You know, there's, there's sheep shearing programs. There's, we have a, we have a bit of that as well. There's lambing programs. There's herding programs. If the BBC were any keener on sheep, it would be illegal. And so you've got all all this sort of sort of obsession with sheep and cows. And of course, it, uh, in 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 the US, you've got the whole cowboy myths, all the Western myths, which have sort of built on that pastoral tradition. But then you, this other strand, which perhaps is even more powerful. It's these books for very young children that, that you hinted at before, you know, where uh, almost from the dawnings of consciousness, we, we're confronted with these books about the idealised livestock farm. And there's one mm. rosy-cheeked farmer and there's one pig and one cow and one sheep and one horse and one dog and one cat and one chicken. And they all talk to each other and they're like a happy family. And of course, there's no indication of why they're there and where they might be going. And so we're brought up with this myth of, oh, that's where our food comes from. It's from a place like that, because it's so deeply embedded in our minds as it's all one of the first things we become aware of. And there's hundreds of these books. When, when, when my kids were that young, it was really frustrating trying to find books um, which were going to appeal to children of that age, which weren't about livestock farms. I sometimes wonder, George, looking at your work, how it is that you maintain any sort of a sense of optimism. Do you? Uh, well, probably self-delusion. <laughs> um, uh, well, I saw it, it is that pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will that Antonio Gramsci mm -hmm. talks about. And, and that, I think it comes from 
the fact that I'm optimistic about people. I think we're much better than we say we are. You know, I think we always assume that everybody else is horrible. You know, we're okay, but everybody else is horrible. And, and it's just not true. You know, the great majority of people I meet are just really nice people. <laughs> They're great. And, and, and yet, of course, we're immersed in this system of terrible values, you know, where we're just told we've got to fight like dog, stray dogs over a dustbin. And that's the highest um, form of human interaction. There could be extreme competition at all times. And, and we're told we're bad people. And, and we almost celebrate the idea of being bad people. And, and I think we just have to tap into the potential of who we really are, which is friendly and neighborly and community-minded and family-minded and looking out for others. And actually, you know, there's a lot of good, solid scientific research showing that those are our dominant values. And while we all have a bit of selfishness and greed in us, um, then, you know, those are values of ours, but they're subordinate values. Unfortunately, we are, broadly speaking, a society of altruists governed by psychopaths. I wonder, <laughs> I mean, this, this is a strange kind of optimism, but the, the, the good qualities in people that you speak of are, are things that often flourish in adversity, uh, that you know, when we confront crisis, the, the best elements of our nature come to the fore. Perhaps as 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 food crisis, as climate crisis <laughs> increase, that may have this sort of compounding effect on on the better angels of our collective nature. Well, there is strong evidence for that, and and some of it's compiled in Rebecca Solnit's book, um, A Paradise Built in Hell, which shows mm. exactly that happening. That you know, when 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 things get tough, people come together. You know, the whole. Um, uh, sort of disaster movie scenario is that um, people pe people pick up a gun or a knife and, and go for each other. But actually, that's not the reality. That's not what really happens. People do tend to 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 club together and work together and support each other. And and we saw that even you know during the pandemic, which you know was uh, you know by by comparison to what we're talking about, not. Not the hugest thing. I mean, it was a it was a big it was a big deal, but it wasn't nearly as big as the potential collapse of planetary systems. Um, we've seen it during floods. We've seen it during those major fire events. I'm sure you've seen lots of evidence of it in Australia. People do look out for each other and support each other when things get tough. But obviously, we don't want it to get to that point, you know, because actually yes, it might be too late to do anything, whether we do it collectively or individually. George, thank you for making time for us and, and thank you for that, that body of, of your work in which we find great grains for hope. Thank you. Thank you so much. A real pleasure to talk to you. George Mobbio is an environmental campaigner, author, Guardian columnist. Uh, his, his new book is Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.